This is episode 72 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Nicole Labor about the neurobiology of addiction. I first learned about Dr. Labor several months ago when a visitor to our site sent me a link to a talk she gave at Kent State. I found her presentation so compelling, and as I became interested in the science of addiction, I returned to it several times. Never dreaming she would actually come on a podcast, I took a chance and sent her an email. Much to my surprise, she agreed. And here we go. My talk with Dr. Labor about the science of addiction. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you. I, I have a couple of messages to pass on to you from a couple of people. There's uh, Kaylee P. in Ireland who um, listened to your talk that you gave at Kent State and has um, read a lot about you. And she says that you've made a big difference in her family. Her mother lost her brother um, from addiction. And understanding addiction as a brain disease rather than a moral weakness has brought a lot of healing for them. And also there's Kathy O. in um, Illinois who um, says thank you because she believes that you're saving lives by helping people understand the physical mechanics of addiction. So you're quite popular in our community. <laughs> and uh, so thank Aww. you for agreeing to do this. It means a lot to us. Sure. Happy to do it. I think that because, um, you know, I, I represent um, an atheist and agnostic perspective in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think a lot of us really value science and understanding, and I think that's why this is so valuable to us to have this. And I, I thought that I would start, Dr. Labor, by, by asking you about addiction medicine, that you practice addiction medicine, and I was hoping that perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what addiction medicine is and what you do as a doctor who practices addiction medicine. Uh, there are, well, there's two pathways to being an addiction, addictionologist, really. Um, you can, uh, board certify in psychiatry and then do, a, uh, additional training in addiction psychiatry. And then the other option would be for you to do your residency in some other primary care field of medicine, like internal medicine or family practice or, um, whatever, and then do a fellowship in addiction medicine. So really, both of those um, pathways could lend to the same sort of career. Um, but what I do essentially is um, medical stabilization, so detox. Okay. Um, detox from opiates, benzodiazepines, alcohol, barbiturates. Those are the dangerous things to uh, come off of. So I do that inpatient. I also do some outpatient detox with for opiates. I would never do outpatient detox for alcohol or benzodiazepines. Um, I do uh, outpatient medication-assisted treatment, so buprenorphine, Vimitrol, uh, Campril, Antabuse, mm -hmm. Methadone. Um, I also work at a residential facility, so an inpatient facility, and my role there is really in more of a family medicine type role. I, you know, I do histories and physicals and I do acute visits, but it's with an addiction perspective. So when the patients are complaining about specific, you know, pain syndromes or anxiety, um, 
when they come to see me, I am approaching them from the standpoint that chemicals are not really necessarily the answer, um, and we need to look at other options. And because your addiction, you know, really wants you to use something and Mm -hmm. is driving sort of this focus. And so that's really what uh, I do in that role. And then what else do I do? You know, consultations, Mm -hmm. um, services. So if somebody's admitted to a medical hospital for, say, like a heart attack or a stroke or pancreatitis or something, and they also drink or use substances daily, um, I would be consulted to either detox them there or to talk with them about treatment options and, and their willingness to participate in treatment. Okay. Right now, there's, you know, there's a good portion of social work sort mm-hmm. of built into the job, which is a little overwhelming at times. Sure. But, you know, people are looking for referrals and things like that. So, I mean, that's really what, what I do. Okay. And, you know, we hear all the time that addiction is a disease. And in your talk at Kent State, you mentioned that it's important that we understand why it's a disease. And I was wondering if maybe you could touch on that here about, you know, what makes addiction a disease? Well, it's a disease because it it meets the criteria for a medical model of disease. And so I always explain that for something to sort of qualify uh, as a disease, it has to fit into the medical model, the disease model, which mm-hmm. says there's an organ, there's a failure or a defect in that organ, mm-hmm. and then there are symptoms as a result of that defect. Mm-hmm. And so addiction falls into that category, um, just like cancer and diabetes and a broken leg and any other disease that we actually call a disease. And in this case, the organ that's affected is the brain. Correct. And in your presentation that, that I really enjoyed, by the way, was uh, you were talking about the neurobiology of addiction, which I thought you did a really great job with that because it's a pretty complex subject. And as a layperson, I thought that I could follow it. But I was wondering if maybe you might want to talk a little bit about that. Um, can you can you kind of explain how what what is happening to our brain when we become addicted? I can try. Without <laughs> my um, so there's the the part of the brain, uh, the cortex, the frontal cortex, which is kind of located on the outside and the front of the brain, and that mm-hmm. is sort of our conscious part of the brain, and that's where our coping skills and stress relief and, uh, you know, ability to communicate and thoughts and feelings and willpower and choice and mm-hmm. all of those conscious things uh, occur in the cortex. And then there's the midbrain, which is a primitive part of the brain that's completely subconscious, and that part of the brain is responsible for our survival. Mm-hmm. And that part of the brain essentially has three main functions and in a normal person, and that is to uh, nourish the body with nutrients and water, mm-hmm. uh, to kill off or run away from predators that are a threat or any kind of threat, uh, and to procreate uh, for perpetuation of the species. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, for example, when a baby is born, we feed the baby uh, almost right away because the nutrients in food or breast milk or formula um, actually trigger the reward system in the midbrain mm-hmm. and they activate it so that the midbrain learns, okay, this is necessary for survival. And so what happens in addiction with repeated use of substances is that reward system gets triggered so much that it becomes dysfunctional. Gotcha. And so all substances of abuse, all drugs and alcohol that people abuse, um, release large amounts of the neurotransmitter dopamine, Mm -hmm. which is our pleasure chemical, Mm -hmm. and high levels of dopamine repeatedly uh, exposed to the midbrain um, cause it to actually 
um, change in its conformation so that uh, the threshold for pleasure changes. Right. And so they, people need more dopamine to feel the same amount of joy and pleasure that they previously had. So once that happens, it's really only the substances that will make that person feel normal and comfortable and comforted and, you know, um, happy in any way. And so they repeatedly will seek that out because the midbrain believes incorrectly, of course, but right. it believes that the dopamine in that high of a level is what's necessary for survival. Right. And so um, that's what the disease state is. It's this broken um, midbrain. And further, like beyond that, mm-hmm. once that starts to happen, every time the midbrain is activated in a craving, mm-hmm. every time the midbrain is like, oh, I need more dopamine so I feel normal, the frontal cortex shuts down. Ah. It gets quiet. It decreases in activity. And so that means the parts of the brain where you value your family, where you value your job, where you where your morals and ethics are, mm-hmm. that part of the brain is repeatedly getting sort of shut down. Right. And even though the brain is not a muscle, if you think of it like a muscle, if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. And so those coping skills and that ability to deal with high-level stress sort of get atrophied. They go away and you need... Uh, substance to help you get through any sort of situation. Right. And you also mentioned that gen- that genetics or genes also play a role in this. And I was kind of wondering, so like almost everybody has a gene for addiction from what I understand. And it takes it and, and there's many different genes for addiction and there and that they ha- that gene has to be activated and it's different for every person. So like, does that gene have to be activated before you have the the problem with the dopamine? How are those related? Once the gene is activated, then the problem with dopamine occurs. So you'll be getting, you can use high level, you can use substances and get high levels of dopamine over and over and over, but your brain is not going to change to need more dopamine until that gene has been activated. Gotcha. Okay. That, that makes sense. I understand that now. Okay. Well, and that, and that gets us into the trap of, because you were talking about the role that stress plays in the whole addiction cycle. Um, because of course we, we become addicted, we have problems in our lives, brings on stress, which makes us want to use. Uh, Could you go into a little bit about what happens with stress and how, what role stress plays in, in our uh, addiction? Well, uh, stress, um, chronic and severe stress, um, which generally would be defined more like a trauma, um, of some sort, um, but trauma obviously could be something as simple as uh, feeling neglected, um, not you know loss of loved ones, um, you know where where the the ability to cope with that for whatever reason is has been disrupted. Um, so that sort of trauma, so that's chronic severe stress. When that happens, when someone experiences long term or chronic severe stress, what happens is the um, the body releases something called corticotropin releasing factor, Mm -hmm. CRF are the initials. And when you have high levels of CRF circulating in the system, that chemical actually causes the same sort of change in the midbrain as repeated drug use. So if you have chronic severe stress and you it predisposes you to need more dopamine to feel normal or okay, and then you use a substance and realize, oh, wow, this actually makes me feel normal or okay, then you will continue to seek out those chemicals because you know that they're making you feel better. 
Mm-hmm. And then, of course, on the flip side is if you become addicted first by repeated use of substances, then you start to experience sort of trauma from your addiction. I mean, addiction can be a very traumatic experience just in terms of the, the lying and the manipulating and the living a double life and the inability to function in society appropriately. Those are very stressful things. And so you sort of activate that chronic severe stress state which then further causes the problem in the midbrain. So they, they just compound on each other. So, you you know, addiction causes stress, which will then further the addiction. Stress can lead to addiction, which will then lead to more stress. And mm-hmm. so it's a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. And the, the treatment um, for this um, is um, to strengthen the, the frontal cortex. And so the listeners to this podcast, we're involved in 12-step program and... Um, so do you see that as a useful way to strengthen our, our frontal cortex to somehow, um, you know, recover from, recover from this? The, the 12 steps to me is what I call it spiritual growth for dummies. Mm-hmm. And spiritual growth is the fastest and most effective way to strengthen the cortex. Yep. And so I promote the 12 steps always, yeah. uh, simply because if you do them in the order that they are written, then you rewire the spiritual part of the brain in such a way that it is able to overpower an active midbrain or a, a diseased midbrain. Right. And so the, the 12 steps is, I, I always tell people statistically, 100% effective yeah. for recovery, yeah. provided that you take 100% of the suggestions. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of, I think that most of us recognize that we need to change. We need some sort of a process to follow. Um, and it helps us to, to have that process, but also to have each other's support. But one thing that's on my mind, Dr. Labor, that I want to ask you about is relapse. Um, because I've, I've been sober now for 30 years and coming on 30 years and I have, Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people relapse. And even as an alcoholic, it's sometimes hard to wrap my head around why this happens. Someone that might have been sober for a good long time will relapse. Do you have any understanding of this? Why is this happening and what could be done to, to prevent it? Well, I mean, there are three, there are three, three reasons humans relapse, right? So, uh, one is exposure to high level dopamine. So, you know, being exposed to drugs and alcohol, even if they're, you know, medically necessary. Right. Um, or, you know, a glass of wine or champagne at a wedding or a, a beer at a barbecue or smoking pot in the basement of your friends or something. Those release high-level dopamine. And so when you expose your brain to that, you reactivate the addiction process regardless of how long you've been clean. And um, the second thing that causes relapse is stress, which we talked about mm-hmm. already. Um, and then the third thing would be people, places, and things. So because the brain is able to remember events that surround getting high-level dopamine. So if you always got high with person A, then your brain associates person A with getting dopamine. So running into that person, hanging out with that person is going to trigger the addiction to sort of wake up. And when you, when you talk about addiction, um, the way that I have, the way it was explained to me and the way that I, I, pass it on is if you're walking through the woods Mm -hmm. and you create a footpath and then you keep walking on that same path eventually it's worn down and now it's a little bit wider and it keeps getting now it's a a one-lane dirt road that a car can go on and now it's a one-lane paved road and now it's a two-lane paved road and by the time you reach sort of the peak of your addiction it's a 16-lane highway with traffic in both directions and when you 
stop using, when you stop using and you start working a recovery program, you basically hang up some yellow police tape across that highway. Yeah. And so when you get exposed to dopamine, when you get exposed to chronic severe stress, or when you get exposed to people, places, and things, you're basically pulling down that police tape. So what has to happen in order to prevent the actual relapse would be to start working out that cortex. Yeah. So you have to refocus your efforts on strengthening that cortex. And so that's when, you know, I tell people, you run into somebody, an old using buddy Mm -hmm. uh, at the Circle K when you're buying milk. If you're going to two or three meetings per week, you mm-hmm. need to bump it up for a little while. Yep. You know, if you get a prescription for a pain medicine after a knee surgery, mm-hmm. if you go to three meetings a week, you should be going to five or six meetings a week, yep. you know. And so you need to increase those supports. You need to sort of practice the coping skills yep. even more so during those times of risk. Because yep. I certainly have seen that as well. And I've seen people, you know, with 40 years of sobriety uh, work in a program who wind up on the detox unit because they've relapsed. Mm-hmm. And I say, what what happened? And they say, inevitably, I mean, 100% of the time in my experience, they say, I stopped going to meetings. Yeah. And I say, why? And they say, because I had 40 years sober. I figured yeah. I was good. And I say, how long? How long were you able to go without going to meetings before you relapsed? And generally, it's less than a year. God, that's incredible. It's like constant vigilance. It takes constant vigilance to do this. You know, I find myself when I'm going to meetings and I'm connected with people, I, I'm happy and I enjoy it, but I can fall out of the habit. And it's kind of a gradual thing like, oh, I won't go to a meeting today. I won't go to a meeting tomorrow or whatever. And I guess that, that could put me on thin ice, you know, um, if, if something happens in my life that causes some stress. Sure. Well, when you think about once you have the disease, the disease is always your default. Yeah. So if you're not actively taking steps towards being sober, being clean, then you're going to be sliding backwards towards the relapse. Now, mm-hmm. it may take some time before that relapse occurs, but ultimately, that's always going to be the default is to slide backwards. And that's no, I mean, it's normal. I mean, life has ups yeah. and downs. You're going periods where maybe you're not as active in the program as other times. But if you keep if you stay consistent and you stay in contact with those people and you and you stay aware of mm-hmm. your defects and your you know um, what's going on in your life and you say and when you can recognize when you have that awareness like I see myself sliding and you force yourself to sort of get back into it it's like anything else it's like if you want to build muscle yep. you know if you want to create big biceps you can do it and you know how you can go to the gym eight hours a day build those muscles up but if you stop going even for an hour a day eventually those muscles are going to go away yeah. So to maintain them, you have to continue to do work every day. Yeah, it's probably another good reason to have somebody close, you know, that kind of that you can stay in touch with, maybe that that it will might notice that if you're starting not to show up at meetings or whatever, to just kind of point it out and get you on track. Because it is it's scary. Because once once a person relapses, it's not always a guarantee that they're going to make it back. Um, and that's just um, that's heartbreaking when you know somebody who's been happy and sober, and and then they and they go through the relapse. So. I guess another good thing though about it, Dr. Labor, it's, it's in a way, it's good to, it's good for me to, to see that because it kind of reminds me of how serious this thing is, you know? So, yeah. So that's another yeah, good reason, I guess. Yeah. And if I you're guess. constantly there, if you're constantly around people in different phases of recovery, you know, you can learn from their mistakes. That's, yeah. that's the gift of 
being sober is that yeah. you don't have to do everything everyone else did just to see that it's going to fail for you too. No, you don't. Yeah, you get to see the good and the bad. You get to see the people get their lives together and get and and get their families together. And you see the bad. You see you see it all. So I guess I guess that that I mean, there's a lot of value in that. So um, it's something that it's something to consider. I was going to ask you about. Um, the role of uh, medication in treating addiction. I mean, one topic that we talk about sometimes among us, our members are is naltrexone and the use of naltrexone. Um, what what do you think of that? I, um, what what are your opinions about medication and treating and um, treating addiction? I think that relying on a chemical to treat chemical dependency is dangerous. Yeah. And I think that if you're using a medication as your primary source of trying to stay clean and sober, then you're going to fail. Okay. However, I do think that using medication to sort of, uh, met, sort of quiet down that midbrain, mm-hmm. uh, so that you can focus on strengthening that cortex and strengthening that, you know, um, program of recovery. Uh, I think it can be really beneficial. Yeah. You know, I, I think the biggest problem I run into though is that all addicts, um, want something quick and simple. And yeah. so when they hear there's a medication, a chemical available that could help them, there's a huge drive to sort of rely on that chemical and then they don't do the work and then they they relapse and they say oh this medication doesn't work and i always say but the medication was working fine you weren't working you weren't doing anything other than taking a medication or a chemical which is what you were doing to get you in this situation in the first place right right and you also pointed out in your talk that not all medications work because addiction is not specific to any particular drug, but medications are. So I might take a medication that will be great for helping reduce my alcohol craving, but then I might start smoking pot or I, I, might, I might start doing some other drug for that medication might not work, work on either. So Correct, because that medication is working in the midbrain, but it's not doing anything for that cortex. And if you don't strengthen your coping skills and your stress relief and your social support, then your brain's still going to need higher than normal levels of dopamine. Yep. So you're going to seek it out in another form. And I see that all the time. And I see it in, you know, people, an alcoholic, for example, that comes to treatment and says, I don't ever use other drugs. I, I hate drugs. I never liked them. I don't, you know, I, I never used anything. And then they get on, say, uh, Vivitrol for anti-cravings and maybe they go to AA meetings and they're able to stay abstinent from the alcohol, and then the next time I see them, they're taking Xanax, or they're mm-hmm. using an opiate pain pill or something, and it, you know, it's because that brain will justify and make an excuse and find a way to get that dopamine uh, as much as it possibly can. Yeah, um, and also, you know, you talked about addiction as being, you know, it's, it's really not a drug addiction, it's a, do- it's a dopamine problem is what it, was, is what it is. So, there's also like, I mean, certain behaviors that maybe we need to watch out for because there are like process addictions you talk about, like gambling and things like that, that also have an impact on our dopamine, though not to the extent, I guess, of um, these drugs that we use. So is that something that, you know, we probably should also watch out for is just certain behaviors that might elicit, you know, certain reactions in, in our brains? Always. Process addictions generally release higher than normal levels of dopamine, not quite as high as as substances. So what we often see happen is as that threshold for pleasure starts to 
to head back down to normal, someone will discover that, hey, gambling or having sex or watching pornography or shopping or eating Mm -hmm. makes me feel normal and okay. And so that threshold sort of gets stuck in that place. And so they're still not able to get real joy or happiness from normal activities, but they're not necessarily needing the drugs. And so those behaviors become the the new addiction. Right. And, and what'll happen is, of course, if you need to gamble just to feel normal on a Tuesday, then when something very stressful happens, your brain again is going to say, we still need more dopamine, and you're going to wind up relapsing back on the substance. Um, yeah. You know, that you were originally using. And so those can, and, and I know, I mean, this, the process addictions is sort of a whole other topic because mm-hmm. obviously, I mean, gambling you can probably, you can live without, but mm-hmm. certainly eating you have to eat right. and having sex, is, you know, or having at least sexual relations, mm-hmm. um, is sometimes necessary mm-hmm. in life. And mm-hmm. so those, the treatment for those is exactly the same. I recommend a 12 step program for those, mm-hmm. but instead of completely remaining abstinent, you sort of define a boundary around right. that behavior. So people say to me, oh, when I exercise, I never want to use, I feel good. And I always say, well, how much are you exercising? Because if you're going to the gym for an hour a day and that's it, fine, that's Mm -hmm. great. I'm glad that that's helpful. Mm -hmm. But if you're working out, you know, three and four times a day for five and six hours a day, that's not healthy. Yeah, right. I've known people, I'm not one of those, but I've known people to do that. So, um, and I guess maybe a good place to kind of finish up, we're coming up on 30 minutes, um, public policy. Are you very involved with, um, you know, advocating for a, a particular type of public policy for, for dealing with addiction in society? Uh, and do you think that we're kind of on the wrong track now or right track? What do you think about all that? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm super busy with clinical care. Yeah. And so... I don't take a huge active role in the politics of it. Yeah. Um, other than, you know, my slapping my lips and, and giving my opinions to people. Um, but I, I mean, my, my opinion on the, the subject matter is simply that, uh, the problem is always the same as the problem with anything else. And that's the bottom line, you know, and, and it comes down to dollars and addiction, uh, doesn't bring any money to anybody. So treating it isn't making anybody any money. Right. And, you know, we, people have health insurance and they won't cover the treatments that are available. And yet people are up in arms crying about why don't we have more treatment centers available? Mm-hmm. Well, because you don't have anybody to, that's willing to work for free. That's why. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, do I think that the government needs to allocate all these billions of dollars towards, you know, development of treatment programs? No, I think mm-hmm. the government needs to advocate for the health insurance companies that already have the money to use it for what it was intended for, to treat yeah. people. Yeah. You know, and I think if there was, if you didn't have those barriers, we'd be able to um, staff, open and staff facilities so that we could, you know, treat the problem. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, and that takes the burden off the rest of society because there are certainly a lot of people out there that don't believe it's a disease and don't think their tax dollars should have to go to treat these degenerates and what, and, and they're entitled to their mm-hmm. opinions. But, I, you know, from my standpoint, there's no need for that because right. these people are pay, have insurance, you know, and, and even if it's state, you know, Medicaid or Medicare or, or some other, you know, government funded insurance, it's still their health insurance. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't it treat their health? If we're calling it a disease, let's treat it like a disease. So I think that that, you know, really is where it needs to start because it becomes impossible. I can have pipe dreams all day about opening amazing facilities Mm -hmm. with all of these options and, you know, how to properly do it. But if I have no way to pay for it, if I have no way to pay 
myself and, and my mortgage and my yeah. staff and my counselors and, you know, then, then I couldn't possibly keep a facility like that open, yeah. you know, and so, and the, the ones that are out there that are thriving are the ones that take, you know, that have, um, patients who come from a different program that they can afford to pay out of pocket for these kinds of treatments. My patients certainly can't. Yeah. And, you know, I just read a book about, um, the kind of the history of, um, treating alcoholism. And it's like we've gone through these periods of time where, you know, we, we would treat it as a disease with some compassion. But then, like, uh, we'd go through these eras, like during prohibition, where we focus on the substance itself and, and, and punishment and, and that sort of thing. And it seems like anytime we go that, that way, it never, it never works. Um, yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but, I, but I do think it's just important that, that I guess society as a whole understand it as a disease. And I mean, really understand it from the, from the way you describe it as a brain disease, as some, and organ that's being affected and that's why we act so screwy is our our brain is being is messed up so uh-huh. anyway i guess I, I i one thing i guess i would conclude with is do you see anything promising is anything is there any new research or is there anything new in science that you're aware of um that in the field of addiction that looks promising mm, I, I mean i don't i can't honestly say that i i've I mean, I, I know that Western medicine really likes to focus on pharmaceuticals, and yeah. so that's where all the dollars and and focus has been on creating new medications. There was talk of a vaccine at one point. I don't know how that was. I, you know, I, I don't really know other than sort of teaching people to sort of cope with life, mm. you know, before they ever get access to a substance i'm not really sure but no i haven't i haven't really but i I also i mean admittedly i'm not like research reader like if i have some free time i kind of want to read something like you know mindless well that makes sense you're dealing with um, addiction and addicts all day long so (laughs) probably you do yeah and i try to never ever take my work home with me so yeah unless i have to do and you know read at home the better for me but if something comes across my desk or someone sends me an email with an article you know I'll generally read that but I haven't heard anything groundbreaking well um thank you again for doing this I appreciate it um I've been to Akron before by the way it's a beautiful city it's a great part of the country um great place to live I would think but, um, well, especially if you're in AA. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I went up there for. Actually, I was with a group of people, and we we did the whole tour, the whole AA history tour, and it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun to see that, and I and I do appreciate the history of of AA. It's when you think about it, um, you know what what we, what this fellowship has been able to do, and all the individual AA members, and the difference that we've been able to make over time. Um, you know, a lot of the progress that has been made in addiction treatment has come from um, people who got sober in AA, quite frankly. And a lot of these other groups that have spun off, you know, that are helping people with other addictions, you know, all spun off from AA. So it's, I'm kind of, you know, it's something I'm kind of proud of, although I know that's not a really good word in AA, but I'm kind of proud of of what we've been able to do. But, oh, well, thank you again. Well, thank you very much. You have a good day. All right. All right. You too. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your support. If you uh, have any ideas for a podcast or if you'd like to be a guest on a future podcast, please send me an email. Uh, you can get in touch with me at john at aabeyondbelief.org. That's john, J-O-H-N, at aabeyondbelief.org.